This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, nationally syndicated radio host Eric McTaxis talks about his book, Fish Out of Water, A Search for the Meaning of Life. He's interviewed by the Claremont Institute's Center for the American Way of Life fellow, Carson Holloway. Eric, uh, you've written a really lovely uh, memoir, a spiritual memoir. I wanted to begin by asking you, um, what made you feel the need to write the book at this time? The book is mainly about events that happened some time ago. Um, so was the book kind of growing inside you for a while? Or what was the trigger that made you think this was the time to put it all down on paper? Well, first of all, I want to make sure that everybody hears that you call the book lovely. That means a lot to me uh, because I, I don't really think of it as a spiritual memoir as much as a literary memoir. And there's a lot of there's a lot of humor in it, as you know, but uh, a lot of it is wistful and lyrical and moving to me personally. So it, it does mean a lot to me that you would use that word to describe it. I guess, honestly, when I had this uh, dream around my 25th birthday, which is the end of the book, I kind of uh, ha- have this dream. For years and years, I've thought someday I've got to write a book where I kind of tell the story of what led up to this dream, which I see as nothing less than a miracle. And I I realized that in order to do that, I have to tell the story of my life because that's really what makes sense. Uh, or I'm sorry, that the, the dream makes sense of the 25 years previous to the dream. And for years, I just thought, okay, I'll write it when I get to write it. I'll write it when I get, and I never intended to write all the books that I've written. I thought I would write this book 20 years ago or something. And strangely, you know, we all know life gets in the way. And so I'm asked to write a biography of William Wilberforce, who led the battle for the abolition of the slave trade. And I thought, a biography. I've never had any desire or ambition to write a biography, but I thought about it and I I wrote a biography. And then of course people figured, oh, Eric has found his genre. Who are you going to write about next? And I said, well, I don't I don't really uh, I don't want to write another biography. But as it happened, I I did write another biography about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in a funny way, um, I kept doing things and writing books and never getting to this. So it wasn't for lack of wanting to get to it a long time, because I really do believe it's an amazing story. I, you know, independent of uh, me being involved, it's just, I just think it's interesting. And so I I just kept putting it off because I had to. And then finally, uh, after I wrote my biography on Martin Luther, um, which uh, came out, I guess, four years ago, and I wrote a book on American, the American founding, and I, finally, 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 I got to write this book, and I did not intend it. It's 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 kind of like you know, people talk about this in the writing process that it becomes something that you didn't anticipate. It became uh, a a literary retelling of my life with with a level of detail I had not anticipated. But I, I just found myself telling these stories that I've been telling verbally most of my life. And, you know, some of them you tell just because they're so funny and you have to tell people, like, I got to tell you what happened. You're not going to believe this. And a lot of it involves humor of growing up in a, you know, with a Greek immigrant father and the misunderstandings and stuff. Um, but so the book became something different than I had intended. And I I just, I have to be honest and say that I, 
I almost didn't know what I had. I thought, gosh, I, I hope this makes sense. I mean, I've told this story and uh, the, the feedback has been fantastic. So I'm not as you know worried as I was, but initially I just thought, I'm not sure what I have here. I mean it to be a great read, a literary memoir, uh, with you know Yale University working class European immigrant, all these different pieces, kind of disparate pieces, but I, I I honestly didn't know if it would if it would ever congeal. That's an ugly word, but you know what I mean. I do, yeah, thanks. And I did mean it when I said it was lovely. And I'm glad you raised this question about uh, or the issue about your life as a writer. Um, the book does reveal that that's an important part of your identity. And I had a couple of questions I wanted to ask you about that before turning to the book itself. I do want to come back to the dream, of course, um, which is so fascinating. But the book does, as you said, involve a lot of very interesting, funny anecdotes told in great detail from decades ago. So I was going to ask you, is it part of your life as a writer to keep a diary or a journal? Or did you sort of compose these stories in your mind over the years? You mentioned you've told them to people. So how, how did that work? I have kept journals uh, very intermittently. I don't even know where they are, so I certainly didn't consult any of them. Um, in fact, I can say that I didn't keep any journals until long after I was 25, and the book goes from zero to 25. So, um, so yeah, this is all from memory, and I, uh, a few times I had to ask my parents, who I thank God are still with us. My dad's 93. He's on the cover of the book, and my mother took the photo. They were on a date at the Statue of Liberty, and the publicist actually said, that's an amazing photo. What are, and I, I said, well, it's my dad. And so it ends up being the cover of the book because it's kind of the immigrant story and, and stuff. But I had to ask my dad. My parents must have thought I was going nuts because I, I called them three times a day to ask them, now, what happened when we were living here? And what, you know, it, and most of it is from memory. But every now and again, there was just something that they added that I that I was able to kind of f figure stuff out. So so that's the long answer to no, I didn't consult any di diaries okay. or journals. All right. Um, maybe there's a difference of opinion between you and me about the character of the book, but it's your book. So I think you should know. You said it's a literary memoir. I was thinking of it as a spiritual memoir, kind of a conversion memoir. And my question has to do with that. That's a very venerable genre. You do mention C.S. Lewis and Surprised by Joy in passing in the book. I mean, to take it all the way back to St. Augustine and his confessions. So I was wondering, as you wrote the book, did you think of yourself as writing in that tradition or are there books I that did. influenced you? I mean, I did. I did. Um, uh, but what's interesting is if you read Surprised by Joy by C.S. Lewis, it's really not about his faith. It's just about his story. Um, and that's kind of what this is about. This is just my story. And it ends up at the end, at the very, very end, about being about this, this, this miracle. But it's funny, as I was writing it, you know, I didn't shrink from uh, talking about faith. But I think the reality is I didn't really have faith. I, I, I tasted faith. I, I flirted with it here and there. Mostly I ran from it or I avoided it. Um, I, I think people who are really uh, serious about the faith often made me uncomfortable. And so I was kind of like a typical person just living, uh, growing up in America. And I was not, you know, a Marxist atheist, but I was neither a, um, a religious person. I was just trying to figure things out, trying to make sense of things. I had a, you know, the, the cultural experience of growing up in the Greek Orthodox Church. And I always say that, you know, if your father is Greek and your mother's German, it means you will be raised Greek, the Greek, like always, you know, rock, paper, scissors. And so I, I had that whole Greek 
experience, but it was mostly a cultural experience. And so, um, so I guess I don't have a problem with people thinking, 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 that's not really a verb, thinking of it as a spiritual memoir. But I do think of it principally as a literary memoir. In other words, I, I, I hope that people who are not particularly interested in spiritual things or whatever would just read it because it's a, it's a fun, uh, it's a fun telling of a fun and, and valuable telling of, um, of, of a number of, you know, bizarre, sometimes bizarre experiences, traumatic experiences, uh, mostly, mostly non-traumatic. Okay, good. Um, I have one other literary question, uh, which I'm just, might- just one. Those are my favorite questions. So, okay. What's up with you and William Faulkner? Uh, I hate him. Okay. Well, I kind of got that, but there is one chapter titled as I lay dying, which seems like kind of a nod to him. I think you may mention him more than any other single writer. Yeah. Um, But I'm not sure about that. I didn't count. Well, it's listen, I'm a jokester and anybody who knows me knows that even when I'm being deadly serious, there's like a joke in there someplace. And I, I guess I'm reacting to the fact that, you know, when I was at Yale, you're you're force-fed modernism you know it's kind of like you got to read Faulkner and I don't really hate Faulkner but I I find that depending on what decade you go to college or or whatever there's certain things that are kind of pushed on you like you know you need to know this or you need to read this you need and strangely enough because I've always been uh somebody who uh you know, I want I want to be an autodidact if I can. So uh, if it's the summer or if I'm graduating college, whatever, I still want to be reading. And, you know, so I remember the bizarre summer after my graduation when I go to Europe and I'm reading this Faulkner book as I lay dying in these incredibly depressing circumstances. And I'm reading of all things to be reading. I was I was reading that book. So th- there's a couple of places where uh, I just I just have to make fun of, of Faulkner. But then uh, at the end, and I don't want to give this away, but the chapter titled As I Lay Dying, that's like an obscure Faulkner joke. N- hardly anyone's going to get it. But in As I Lay Dying, he uh, he has a pretentious one sentence chapter. And I say pretentious because like, hey, look at me, I'm being a modernist. I'm going to do the one sentence chapter just to, you know, like to freak everybody out. And because uh, nobody's been doing it before me and it's the 1930s. So uh, his chapter is my mother is a fish. <laughs> and I thought I'm going to do a one sentence chapter as I lay dying. My savior is a fish. So it's just a dumb joke. The book is littered with dumb jokes. I hope most people don't notice them. <laughs> well, the book is funny. Um, the book is a great family memoir. Um, some parts of it remind me of reading somebody like James Thurber, my life in hard times, the interesting family members, the funny things they say. Um, would you mind telling an anecdote about I one that was laugh out loud funny to me and that I told my family and they all loved it was uh, that moment of kind of young teenage arrogance when you're arguing with father about. Oh, uh, oh my gosh, my father. I mean, it ends up being appropriate that his that he's on the cover of the book. Because I said, while I was talking to him on the phone, you know, I'd call him up and say, can you remind me like what, where did we live or what was this or that? And eventually, you know, I'm talking to him and asking him questions about things that happened like in the Greek church in Danbury, Connecticut, where we grew up. And he's like, you're not going to write about that, are you? You know, like he's really worried about his reputation at age 93 that, you know, he could lose his his standing in the community. And I said, Dad, are you joking? Like this stuff happened a million years ago. And you're 
you don't have anything to worry about. You you end up being the hero of this book. It's not like I intended that, but it seems clear to me that somehow you're you're the hero of this, you know, buildings roman. It's just obvious. And part of it is because of the funny stories that involve him in the book. And one of them uh, is I always say that what what would drive me like to drink about my parents. My my mom is German from Germany. My dad is Greek from Greece. They met in an English class here in New York City where I live. They met in an English class uh, in 1956. Their first date was to the Teddy Roosevelt birthplace home on East 20th Street. And, you know, and I always joke around and say that, you know, if you're raised Greek and German, it means you'll be raised Greek. And it's it's true. But at the same time, the reason the book is titled Fish Out of Water, one of the reasons is that you never quite feel like you fit in. Because if you have an identity, two parents are Greek, you're the Greek kid. But my mother's German. So I would go to the Greek Orthodox parochial school in Corona, Queens and to church and whatever. And I'd be surrounded by Greek people who were thoroughly Greek. Both parents are Greek. They spoke Greek at home. We spoke English at home. So I always felt like a fish out of water, like I'm not Greek enough. And it was this kind of odd, odd thing. And then I'm around, you know, American kids when we moved to Connecticut. And I felt like, I'm not, am I really American? Because my parents are so European. You know, we didn't, uh, I didn't play catch with my father and we didn't, you know, do all the normal stuff. So there was a lot of dissonance. And what some of the craziest stuff is that my parents would talk past each other, that my mother would say something and my father would misunderstand because the language or whatever. And so I was always kind of translating and whatever. And I thought like I could get a PhD in in understanding my parents when no one else would. And there were times when my father would would misspeak in a way that was doubly wrong so that there was no way anyone but me with the PhD in Nick Metaxas would understand what he said. Uh, and, but, but I had kind of an innate sense of where he was going. So if he said something that wasn't the right word, I would, I would understand. And the, the classic case for me is when we were, um, well, actually, no, the, the, the first story uh, involves, we went to, uh, we were going to McDonald's. So this is in the seventies and my father never took us to McDonald's. My mother always took us to McDonald's before we went to Greek school, which we hated. It was like every Tuesday. And, uh, but my father once took my brother and me to McDonald's and it was like, maybe, I think I was maybe 12 or 13 or something like that. And my father goes up to order, we order. And then my father says, eh, give me one uh, whooper. And my brother and I instantly knew he meant to say whopper. He said whooper. Whoppers are at Burger King across the street. So the, the young person behind the cash register, their head is just spinning because they have no idea. How do you respond to give me one whooper? And my brother and I would just cringing in embarrassment as you do when you're 12 years old. Like, dad, whooper, whoppers are, are not at McDonald's and it's pronounced whopper. It's not whooper, whatever. So he says, give me one whooper. And like instantly we knew what he meant, what he was saying. The same thing happened like maybe five years later, I was, there was this angsty moment. I was maybe 17 or 18 and, and I just was in college and we were probably filling out financial aid forms at the kitchen table, which is the least favorite thing I would ever do in my life. And it was just this moment of incredible tension. I have no patience. I still have no patience. And my father's doing this with me and I'm just, it's an agony for me. And I don't know what we were arguing about. Somehow the tension explodes. And the way you do when you're 17 or 18, you sort of, you just repeat things that you've heard somebody say on TV or something like that. 
So at some point I repeated the cliche. I said, I don't want to talk about it. Like I'd heard that on TV or something. There was not normal speech in my home. So I said, I don't want to talk about it. Like kind of arrogantly. And my father's response, like you need to like, I knew what he meant to say. He meant to say something, which if he had said it correctly, just like if you order a Whopper at McDonald's, it's wrong and strange, but it would have been wrong and strange if he had said this correctly, but he said it incorrectly. And so it made it so bizarre. And so what I'm talking about is he, he wanted to respond to my, I don't want to talk about it with what, what do you think I am a leper, which is what people were saying. This is like maybe, you know, 1981 and maybe he picked it up in the van pool commuting to work or something. What am I am a leper? You know, it's kind of like, what am I chopped liver? But people are saying, what am I a leper? And if my father had said, who do you think I am a leper? What do you think I am a leper? It would have been bizarre. Like, you know, you're, you're, you're a Greek. You don't, you don't talk like that. What is that? Where's that coming from? But instead of saying, you know, what am I a leper? My father says in the moment of tension that I'm angry and I say, I don't want to talk about it. And he says to me, who do you, who do you think I am? A leprechaun. (laughs) And I, I just like my head spun around three times. Like, who do you think I am? A leprechaun. I thought my father does not know what a leprechaun is. The image of a leprechaun springing into the room in the moment of tension between father and son. I just thought, I, I burst out laughing and it, 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 re- it re- relieved all the tension. But I just thought it's so classic that he would try to say, what am I, a leper? And he would come out with, who do you think I am, a leprechaun? Maybe you had to be there. No, no. You, you read it. You thought it was funny. I, most people actually refer to that in the book because it's so it, – it, but it kind of sums up my childhood in a way that there's this tension, this misunderstanding, but – it never goes anywhere beyond, you know, we get over it instantly. But there was a, it was just a lot of that growing up. And I'm sure people from different immigrant backgrounds get, you know, they, they have that, just this crazy language issues and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, the, what underscores all this is I, I realized that there's the love that my mother and father had for me. That's kind of, that's the undergirding thing for me. I realize how much they loved me and how important that is to everything that followed in my life, that anything I ever become, you know, it's because of, because of their love. And so it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a very fond portrait, you know, um, which I think comes across. I think it does. And one thing I like about that story is that you explained that when you laughed at your dad, you explained, and then he laughed too. And the tension was over because he thought it was funny as well. Yeah. Um, And that leads me to something more serious. Um, an old-fashioned word that we don't think about enough anymore, I think, came to mind as I read your book, and that expression is filial piety, um, respect for the father, respect for parents. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the connection between filial piety and your journey, your intellectual and spiritual journey. And I'd like to read a passage. There's a really great passage, which I have here. When you went back to Greece and visited your great-grandfather's gravestone, and this is on page 345. So here, here it is. And then I want to get your reaction to this. You said, visiting the grave, I stared at the grave. What did I want? I knew I was lost, but I didn't believe the universe really could be meaningless. I just didn't know how or where to find that meaning. So I did the only thing I knew that might have some meaning. I knelt down far from anyone's sight and kissed the stone. I paid my respects. One thing was true to me in the world without any doubt. 
And that was my father's love for me and my love for him. And paying my respects to this man who was his beloved and revered grandfather, I was paying my respects to my father too, and the goodness and truth and love I had seen in him. In a way, it was my father's love for me that somehow pointed me to the idea that there could never be a world in which love meant nothing, that there had to be something behind that somewhere. But where? That's pretty profound. And I'd like you to talk about that, this sense that an experience of a father's love teaches you that the world can't be meaningless. Well, it's interesting because when I wrote that, that's when I was, I guess, 23, I think, when when I experienced that, maybe 24, um, I was really lost. And it's funny because sometimes people, they know family is important or, or something. For me, I never felt this onerous sense of, you know, duty that was crushing. It was, it was always appropriate. I understood that, you know, to love your mother and father, to treat them with respect. These are things that I somehow knew because my mother and father, the way they loved me, I always say, I, you know, I've joked around with my, my own daughter that to really love somebody is to have like moral authority over them. In other words, if somebody says, Hey, Hey, punk, I would die for you. So maybe you should listen to me. My father and mother just made it clear that they, they would give me their lives and they had given me their lives. They worked hard, menial jobs. So I get to go to Yale university. And that just kind of trumps anything, you, you, you know, any, any um, sassiness you have as an adolescent, because you realize they have lived this self-sacrificial thing, this parenting, uh, mothering and fathering. And I, I knew that from my parents, they had lived really hard lives. And I knew that, you know, growing up in Germany during the war and after the war and growing up in Greece during the war and after the war, they had really suffered. They'd suffered hunger. And that really, it spoke to me. I understood that, that they were, were really uh, sacrificing. And so it's not like I had any uh, really intellectual thinking about this, but I simply remember going, being totally lost and going back to the island where my father grew up, uh, Cephalonia, where I've been many times since, and where we, we've had always had relatives there, and we 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 go there. It's not it's a distant thing. My father grew up there, and um, and I do remember being lost and visiting my father's grandfather's grave, and my father always spoke about his grandfather Panagis Vergotis. He was uh, very literary. He was self-taught, and my my father always said that I got my genes from Panagis Vergatis from your because he was very literary and nobody in our family is particularly literary, but I am. And he always spoke with such respect of his grandfather. There's actually a statue of my great grandfather in Argostoli. He, he really was a revered figure. And here we are immigrants, working class European immigrants, far removed from any of this kind of thing. So I, when I was there, I visited the grave and I, I just felt like an innate sense that what do I know of transcendence? I don't really know anything of transcendence. And maybe this is why some people are involved in things like ancestor worship, but you just know there's something here that has value and that my father spoke of it. And so uh, I remember this moment kissing the stone, almost expecting a miracle because I don't know where miracles come from. I just know that this is sacred somehow. Uh, and, but it is, interesting to me that anything that is really good points you to all goodness. And when I was writing the book, I, the lines that you read that I, I wasn't conscious of it, but I realize now that intuitively when you, when you encounter something really authentic and beautiful and true, 
I think every human being recognizes that because we're, we're created to recognize truth and goodness and beauty. And in a way, it steers you toward truth and goodness and beauty itself. You know, the specific sp uh, uh, leads you uh, to the general. And I, I, I think that if you have a mother and a father, as I have, that love you, the concept that we are accidents, that we evolved out of the primordial soup uh, accidentally, and we're just here, and life really has no meaning, but we have to create some meaning and whatever, it, it doesn't, it, it's impossible to, to get that. It, do, it just doesn't seem possible because the love you feel from your parents can't simply be uh, an evolutionary quirk designed to perpetuate the species. It, 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 it doesn't seem possible. And I do think that that, I mean, I think that's true now, you know, I could back that up, but at the time, I just think it kind of becomes an inner gyroscope that leads you to, to goodness and truth and, and, and beauty uh, and meaning. But at the time I was, I was looking for meaning and that was kind of as close as I could get at the time. Okay. Very interesting. Um, with your parents, it seems that they set, they taught you by example. Um, there's a kind of a saying that I've often heard that you know, we should teach by example, not so much by precept. And I rebel against that a little bit, maybe because I'm a teacher. So part of my job is to teach by precept and just give people words. There's a great part in the book where your uncle sat you down and your brother and taught by precept about the importance of respect for a father. I really like that passage. Could you tell oh. I mean, I will never, ever forget that. And, you know, you talk about filial piety. I wouldn't have thought of that term. I mean, I never really would have thought of that term, but it's the right term. I just remember I was, I don't know, 13 or 14 or something like that. And my Uncle Joe, I write about him with incredible reverence. I just adored my Uncle Joe. He was the cool, you know, second father in a way because he was American. My father was Greek, so he didn't get a lot of stuff. My Uncle Joe was born here, you know, Italian-American. And we really revered him. He was, you know, a, a, a fireman, a New York City fireman, and he did carpentry on the side. And he was just a man's man. And my father wasn't quite, you know, and so we just loved Uncle Joe. We loved my father too, but Uncle Joe was just the, the ultimate. And I remember around that age, I made some kind of disparaging remark about my father. I think he was out of earshot and I kind of just said something disrespectful. And my father and mother had left and my uncle said to my brother and me that he wanted to talk to us and he never raised his voice to us. He never, but he kind of gave us a speech that was like a sermon. And my uncle was far from religious, but he just sat us down and started talking about his father and uh, my father. And, and he, it was like a, a, like a black a pastor's sermon where you, where you just have a refrain that you keep coming back to in the sermon, like it's this peroration. And he kept saying, because he's your father. And he didn't raise his voice, but it had this moral authority. As soon as he said it, you know, that I had disrespected my father, and he says, because he's your father, it just thundered in my soul, like, wow. I know that's right. He's right. I love my father. How could I be so ungrateful and so disrespectful? And But when he said it, what I didn't realize, and it's kind of like what I was saying to earlier about sometimes you don't make the intellectual connection, but you make the instinctive uh, uh, connection that you know this is right and true. You might not know why until later. But, you know, later in life, I realized that you know, when we talk about the office of the president, you could hate the president, 
But the office of the president, you have to respect it because he's the president. Now, that's kind of gone by the wayside in some ways, but I think that's important. Uh, and I feel the same way about mothers and fathers. And that idea, I mean, the Bible says, honor your mother and father. It doesn't say honor them because they're honorable. They could be jerks, but you're honoring the office and there's something deep about that. And when my when my, my uncle said that, uh, he said, because he's your father, it just, I, I will never ever forget it. And I'm so glad I put it in the book. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Um, I have a related question and then we'll move beyond filial piety, but it's, I think, related. Um, you mentioned in the book that uh, from an early age, a very young child, you had a kind of fascination with the past. Um, you remember, or you tell about remembering looking at books with biblical figures. And uh, I just wonder, why do you think some people are like that? Um, I'm not talking about politics here, but it just seems like one could say, as you reveal yourself in the book, you're kind of a natural conservative, not in the ideological sense, but just having reverence for the past, fascination for the past, even start the memoir before you're born um, with uh, stories about your family reaching back into the past. What, what, is, what is going on there? I mean, honestly, I have no idea. And that's to me what's so fascinating about looking at your life and finding things out about yourself that you can't quite explain. But I've always... Uh, had a fascination with the past as though being able to go into the past is being able to touch eternity. And so these hallowed memories, there's something about art and about memory that in a way you're able to touch uh, the eternity outside of time through art. I mean, I'm hardly the first one to say that, but there's something about the past and why do we revere the past? We always talk about the good old days or we have memories and there's something hallowed about certain memories. And I do think that that has a, um, I think it's it's just what it means to be human, but I've always felt it very keenly. Uh, I, I, I've always somehow felt like, you know, time travel, if you can touch something that's, that's from the past, that you can be where someone was, uh, you know, centuries ago or something. I'm not sure what that is, but I noticed, as you have in the book, that it's something that I come back to over and over again. Um, I think I make sense of it a little bit later uh, in the book, but it really is, uh, I really think it, it speaks to our human desire to transcend time and space, and it's our longing for eternity. Uh, and sometimes you think, well, if I go back to my childhood, that's where that was, that feeling of, of heaven, this dreamy thing, um, because we're really longing for eternity, but something happens to most of us in childhood that that we want to go back there. We think if I could only go back there, it's like going back to the garden, uh, to Eden. Um, and, and there's just a, there's just a longing that I would say is inherent. But as I say, I, I do feel it particularly keenly. I think about it a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you came right to what really fascinates me, not only the past of the human race or the past of our civilization, which can exert a real draw, but also even in our own past. And I'd like to read another passage from the book on page 255. You talk about graduating from Yale, you describe the graduation ceremony, and then you say this. Even now I wonder how that golden moment in the past can be passed and those happy young faces be gone forever. I see them smiling back at me now so vividly as this minute as real as it was then and perhaps more so, not just more real, but more present too in this future time that is as much then as that past moment was then. Is that what memory is? A kind of explosion inward into eternity and transcendence. Is this the glory of our human minds made in the image of God through which, though fallen, nonetheless preserves a dim echo of eternity and Eden in its unfathomably depth fib deep fibers 
and thus is able, godlike, to shuttle between past and present and future with the infinite speed of thought. The most glorious animals cannot do it, but we can. Um, yeah, I mean, that goes to what you were just talking about. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. And I guess what I want to ask you is, speaking of C.S. Lewis, is that the experience of joy that you think he's talking about? Is this what you're experiencing too? That- yes. Yeah, I think so. He he uses the word Zainzucht, the German word, uh, and then he translated it as joy. And that's why the title of his book is Surprised by Joy. But it's kind of an ineffable sense of something, even when you're not aware of what it is. As a kid, you have this feeling sometimes and you look back on it. I think um, for me, it also happened with things that were really tiny. It's it's almost like something that's really small. And uh, Lewis writes uh, in Surprised by Joy about how his brother had a you know a, a, a biscuit tin that he he put moss in it and he created like this miniature garden. And and Lewis talks about how this somehow it just gave him this deep yearning for something he knew not what. Uh, and you know Chesterton talks about. Uh, uh, Elfland, the horns of Elfland, or the ethics of Elfland. You know this this fairy tale world. Maybe it's through the wardrobe. Maybe it's over the horizon. Uh, maybe it's beyond the grave. It's always over there and not here. And we're longing for it. And I and I really think that's the universal human condition. And I did uh, feel that a number of times. I talk about we spent these summers. Uh, in Kutchog on the North Fork of Long Island, uh, you know, in a house that cost $100 a month for the whole extended family, we would go there and it was not far from the beaches. And it was so magical and so sacred in in my memory. I just think it was like being in heaven. The memory of that, uh, it's just so indelible. And I really do think those are kind of signposts uh, for for us that that there's something that is uh, pricked uh, deep inside us that that we, we you know we spend our lives looking for that and some people look for that in all the wrong places and I think that that's even when you're looking for it in all the wrong places um, you're still looking for that that sense of connection meaning uh, you know and I think that that's that's the idea of God. I mean, I talk about it at the end of the book, but it, it is interesting to me how there are these moments along the way that just mark you. And you, you, you always think if I could go back there, uh, I'd have it made, you know, and some people spend their whole lives trying to recreate what that was. Uh, so um, I'm, I'm not uh, sure if I, I've answered the question. Well, I think it's a great answer. Um, so you speak of it as a kind of signpost. Let me ask you about a negative signpost. Um, you write uh, very frankly in the book about some childhood experiences where, uh, you know, you kind of engaged in some of the minor cruelties that kids often do, like making fun of somebody, yeah. laughing about it. Um, do you think that those are kind of evidence of original sin? You mentioned that you didn't learn anything like that at home. Your parents oh yeah, oh it's chilling to me. I mean, it's chilling to me. People who read that, I w- I won't say exactly what it was, but there were two cases when I was, I guess, in one case I was eight years old, uh, and in the other one uh, I was uh, nine, and I just remember two moments of a kind of a cruelty that I engaged in that. I could say was completely unlike me. I mean, I, I don't know where that came from, why I did that, but you look at it and you cannot argue it away. You did this, you said this, and and my parents never uh, modeled 
anything approaching that kind of behavior. So yeah, when I look at it, I go, wow, that's where, where is that coming from? What is that? And so the idea that, you know, an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old is innocent, you think, well, uh, on some level, of course, that's very true. But on another level, uh, it's not. So it, re it really did get me thinking. And, it, you know, it does remind me, speaking of Augustine's confessions, of when he stole the pears, you know, uh, of all the things that he did, that is what haunted him. And why is that? Uh, it's, it's bizarre how... Uh, you can remember something that you did wrong that just kind of, it, it sort of haunts you. You really wish you could, you could undo that. Yeah. Well, let's move forward here in your life story and talk a little bit about college. Um, you mentioned that you started at Trinity College and got to transfer to Yale after a year and a half. I mean, it seems to me that in your telling, there was more genuinely intellectual life at Trinity than at Yale, that Yale had drifted into kind of a kind of pose of nihilism, a cheerful nihilism. Yeah. The meaninglessness of life was assumed, but people didn't really grapple with that in a serious way. Well, the, re the reason that's true, I was, I was, uh, I transferred after one year, but I chose to stay another semester because when I went to Trinity, I mean, I went, I graduated uh, early. I was 16 years old. You know, I took all these like advanced courses. I had zero guidance. I'm going to a public school and they didn't know you know, they, they couldn't guide you. And my parents had never been to college. So I made a lot of mistakes in a sense, you know, and, uh, you know, I got great SATs and all, but I was not able to get, I was on the wait list at Yale on the wait list at Dartmouth. And so I ended up going to Trinity college in Hartford and somehow at the last minute, somebody said, Oh, you should join guided studies. It's like this, like honors humanities course. And I thought I would be like you, I'd go into poli sci. I, I wanted to be in politics or something that, because I'd been in, uh, involved in working for the, the local mayor in Danbury. And so I get involved in this honors humanities program and it was magical. I mean, we studied all of the classic books and I got the education that I really was longing for in those three semesters. I mean, you know, we read, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey and all the Greek uh, tragedies and so much great stuff. And, you know, the fairy queen and Milton and on and on and on and on. But it was a real grounding in uh, Western thought that I wasn't even aware I was looking for, but in retrospect, it's obvious that that's, that was the right choice. Um, and then when I was at Yale, which is I always wanted to be at Yale and now I'm at Yale and but I never had another humanities course that was ever the equal of what I got at Trinity. Yale had already moved on into the kind of, you know, it's today we would say woke or, you know, but back then political correctness had already taken over in the early 80s. And so it was a lot of about, you know, post-structuralism and Jacques Derrida and Foucault and all this stuff. I never really got into that stuff at all, but it was in the atmosphere, it was in the drinking water, so to speak. And just to take a course on the great books and to think about meaning, that was really passe at Yale, considered passe by then. They had already kind of moved on to like, life is actually meaningless. And so we're gonna make the best of it by joking or, or something, I don't know what. And that's not something I picked up consciously, but unconsciously, you ju it's just there. And that really, um, I think moved me away from any sense of, uh, you know, being grounded in anything, any sense of meaning. And so when I graduated, I was really 
very lost. I, I was not, uh, you know, I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know quite what that meant, how you do that. You know, my parents, were, they didn't get to go to college. They didn't have any tips for me on, you know, oh, we've got a poet friend that you can go visit or something. And so it was really, uh, it, it was a tough time. But I do think that Yale uh, and, and schools like that, at least since the, the 80s, have uh, wittingly or unwittingly been pushing this idea of, um, you know, that we don't talk about old fashioned things like truth and beauty and goodness and meaning and whatever. We're, we've already figured out that's, that's not true or that's not, we're just not going to get into that. And I, I accepted that, but I, I wasn't really clear on what does that mean? What, how do we live, how do we live our lives based on that? So, yeah, it was, a uh, it, it was really strangely true that, that, uh, Yale University had had ceased to teach English or the humanities uh, in in anything close to a satisfying way already uh, in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned too, though, you mentioned political correctness in your answer. Seems like there was a kind of political fanaticism at Yale. You mentioned that if anybody dissented, they would be hissed into silence. You oh, think- yeah, it was already there. I mean, you see this on campuses now, but it started at places like Yale. There's no, there's no question. I mean, it was there. Uh, I don't know where it came from, but it's kind of like um, it, that that culture was already there firmly in place in the early 80s, yeah. Um, I was going to ask you to return to your story, your life story, your quest for meaning. Um, it's a philosophical story and a spiritual story. Um, and it's obvious that this question of the meaning of life was important to you from a young age. You had this sense of being a fish out of water. That's one of the meanings of the book, I think. Um, but at the same time, it's almost as if you're suggesting, you don't quite put it this way, but that God communicated with you through certain striking symbolic coincidences, um, like getting hurt really bad on Good Friday, being able to go home on Easter Sunday, or walking into a manhole at a time when you're concerned that we're just held into existence by this thread and nothingness is we're kind of over an abyss. And then, of course, there's the Robert Plant song, which is the third one, where you actually... <laughs> Uh, laid it down to God, uh, give me a coincidence that will give me some guidance here. Um, so could you talk about those experiences a bit? And how yeah. I, I mean, listen, th- this is what I find fascinating in a way about stories that are miraculous or anything like that. Those two, uh, you know, falling in the manhole, uh, which I literally did, it sounds like a joke, like a cartoon, like a, you know, uh, Mr. Magoo or Harold Lloyd uh, do those things. We humans, we don't normally do those things. Um, but they happened. Uh, I almost died on Good Friday. Uh, I, you know, was resurrected to some extent on, uh, on Easter Sunday. I mean, I didn't make that up. It's only in retrospect you think, whoa, like that's crazy. What was that all about? Um, the thing about the manhole, uh, Wesley in college where my friend John Tomanio, um, uh, went to school, uh, is in Middletown, Connecticut, which literally has the widest main street in America. I was walking, uh, on the sidewalk with him. This is about 1985, right after college. And one moment. I mean, there's no way to describe this. People have to read this in the book because there is no way to describe this in a couple of seconds. But the bottom line is the, the world turns upside down in a femtosecond. The bottom drops out and I'm caught by my armpits, uh, you know, looking up at my friends. I fell into a manhole and by God's grace did not s- crack my head on the 
uh, sharp metal lip on the way down. I mean, it was just like a nightmare. But then I tried to make sense of it. And obviously, I write to some uh, uh, extent about I was trying to make sense of meaning and does the world have any ground? Is there any ground of all being, you know, there are not a lot of people worrying about that at age 22 because they're busy working at some job, but I was trying to be a writer and I was thinking about these things and I was really thinking, is there any ground of all being, or are we just floating in the abyss? Uh, Do we have to create our own meaning? Um, So those were things that were really bothering me. I I was trying to figure this stuff out and uh, I don't know, Honestly, I cannot say that those were uh, events that were uh, in any way miraculous because I've had really miraculous events like the dream at the end of the book where I just say that is unquestionably a miracle in my mind. There's just there's no arguing. I mean, people can think what they want, but I, you know, I, I just don't know what to say except I, I, I know it was a miracle. It blew my mind and changed my life in you know, matter of uh, hours, but I, uh, but the other two things, yeah, they're just, it's just weird because I think as a writer, we try to make sense of things and we read into things. And I think the manhole thing is kind of an example of that. Um, the, the good, the, the, the almost dying on good Friday, you know, in 1980, uh, th- those things, I don't know, but I'm glad that I got to write about it because the place such things belong is in a, either in a work of fiction or a work of nonfiction, but in something where, where people can kind of, uh, can kind of look at it and and see what they what they think. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, what, let's talk about the dream. Um, that's the pivotal moment. Um, <clears throat> perhaps you could tell us about that and what led up to it and how it affected you. Well, I don't. It's like I don't want to give away the punchline uh, because I feel that it, it's it really would be like telling the murder, like who who killed you know who 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 killed who who was the murderer you know in, in in advance and it kind of spoils it it whatever but all i will say is that the 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 dream wove together three utterly disparate parts of my life in a way that was so astonishing in a, in a way that I had never considered, I had never, I had never even hinted, leaned in this direction a millimeter. Um, And it just was a mind blowing, absolutely staggering uh, kind of fairy tale dream that it just blew my mind in the dream. I just said, this is God. There's, I don't want it to be God. I don't know if it, I just know it is. It's, it's like one of those things where you don't, you don't say, well, that's what I was hoping. I, I didn't know what I was hoping. I wasn't really hoping anything. I was so lost, but it was so stunning, such a stunning weaving together of these disparate elements, you know, in a way that I, I am still astonished by it, that when I think about it, I think that's just, you know, it seems like a divine, you'd have to be a divine super genius to be able to, 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 to do this and to weave together these elements of, of my life that I myself w- was unaware of. I was not thinking of these elements, but now I look back and I think if somebody put a gun to my head and said, who are you at that age? I would have said, you know, this, this, and that, you know, the Greek uh, issue, that was a big thing of who I am. Fishing was a big part of my identity because what did I do besides study? You know, I'd, I'd go fishing. It was our hobby. And, you know, uh, it did, did a lot of that. And then the life of the mind, the, the idea of 
trying to figure out the meaning of life. And then in college kind of thinking that, you know, I think maybe Jung and Freud were onto something when they talked about the, uh, the sub, the, the, the collective unconscious. And I came up with this image of a frozen lake that the, you know, the, the, the mind, the, the conscious mind is the, is the ice on the lake and the unconscious mind is the water beneath the ice, which, you know, Jung talks about the collective unconscious, whatever, you know, and I, and I don't really believe that now because I think that God revealed himself, Jesus revealed himself. But I, at the time I wasn't, I didn't have a clue about anything. And so in the dream, these things are woven together in a way that's so poetic and beautiful. I, I, I know that I can't take credit for it. I didn't invent this. I've, I've done a lot of inventing in my life. You know, I'm very imaginative, but this was utterly, you know, uh, not, not, not for me, let's put it that way. And, and I think we also have an innate sense when something is, is our, uh, our brain or, or not, but it was, it was, it was dramatically life-changing. And that's why the book is, you know, fish out of water search for, for the meaning of life because the fish out of water, you know, without giving the punchline, but it, it's a theme that runs through my life. Uh, I even wrote a short story at Yale that won all these prizes called The Wild Ride of Miss Impala George. And I had wanted to put it in the appendix to the book. We, we should have, but uh, I, it's on my website. If people go to ericmetaxas.com under writings, I, it's there. But it, it's a short story that I wrote that has this kind of dreamlike quality that I wrote. I was uh, 20 when I wrote it and it won these awards at Yale and stuff. And looking back now, I see some of these themes in this dreamlike story. And, you know, that, that's, uh, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of amazing to me, but I certainly wasn't conscious of any of this stuff. And so, yeah, it kind of comes together in a way that I, I, I hope people can experience it as I did. In other words, that, that, uh, that, that, that they would, that they would be where I was when it happened to me, when I had the dream so that they can sort of try to make sense of, of, of what it was. Cause I didn't see it coming. And I think that's, that's a big part of the whole, the whole story is that I didn't see any of this stuff coming. You're just living your life. You're doing your best. You don't know where to turn for guidance. Um, so I thought if, if all of that can have a happy ending, I need to share that with people uh, who are hungry for, for meaning. And, uh, and I did want to do it, uh, you know, in, in, in some ways along the lines of, of C.S. Lewis or, or Augustine. I mean, I wasn't thinking of them too, too much, but I thought I don't want it to be a book about God. I want it to be a book about life. Um, and I just want to tell all these stories because I think that the, the context is important. When I think of the, my family, the, the, the love I have for my family in Greece and for my Greek roots and the love I have for my mother and my, my grandmother, who's a, wonderful figure in the book. I mean, one of the greatest people I've ever known was, was my, my grandmother. And I, I, I just think that all of it adds up to something, but I can't pretend to say that I know what, I just know that I lived it and I, uh, and I, you know, and I wrote it. Well, let me ask you about two prominent threads. Um, we're getting near the end of our time. I was thinking about the connection between faith and God and humor. The book is very funny. It's also very earnest. You were earnest in your quest um, for meaning. Uh, I was reminded as I read it uh, that somewhere, and I don't remember where, Thomas More observes that the Gospels never record that Jesus laughed. They record that he wept, but not that he laughed. doesn't mean he didn't laugh, but it's not recorded for us. So that's a little bit of a challenge, but I mean, I like to laugh too. I like funny stories, as you can tell. I've enjoyed your book. 
What do you think is the connection or is there one between faith and humor? Um, are they different ways of making sense out of the world or related ways? Yeah. I mean, I think it has to do with, with what I'm getting at with the, with the, uh, with the unconscious in a, in a sense. Like I think that what laughter is, and I don't know if Freud writes about this and I don't want people to think that the book is, is, is a pretentious, you know, Freudian. Uh, it, it's just that sometimes you get an, a handle on how to think about stuff. And I think a joke is when somebody says something that is in your unconscious or in the back of your mind and they get there first and it kind of leaps out of your mind, you know, it, it's pulled out of your mind and there's this like frisson of, you know, electricity or, or something. And that's, that's what makes you laugh. And it, it has to do with truth because humor is, you know, if, if you simply speak the truth, that's what, you know, jesters would do. It's funny because nobody has the guts to say it. And so if somebody like a Don Rickles says what you're not supposed to say, it's screamingly funny because everybody's thinking that's so true. And yet I can't believe he just said that. How could he say that? But it's not meant to be mean. It's really meant to connect. And I think that's part of the problem in a way with political correct woke culture is that it, it tamps down our ability to, to laugh at ourselves. Uh, if we can't laugh at ourselves, we're dead, basically. You'll have, you, you won't have a civilization. You have to have, you know, and that's where free speech and all that stuff is vitally important. And we are really in serious danger uh, on, on that score. But I think that humor and truth are always related. And I do think actually that Jesus, he, he's not like cracking one-liners, but he, I can't think of any examples right now, which is tragic, but he says a number of things that are just, you know, like the people had to be, well, uh, here's, here's an example. I'll, I'll, I don't know if I can pull this off in, in a minute, but there's a moment in the beginning of his ministry where he tells uh, Peter, uh, Jesus tells Peter and stuff like that, you know, throw your nets on that side of the boat. And they kind of look at him like, who's this jerk telling it? Like, we know where to fish. We're the fishermen. Why are you telling? Well, they do it and they, they catch more fish than they can possibly haul in. Three years later, after the resurrection, Jesus uh, appears on the shore. They don't know who it is. So some stranger says to them, have you caught any fish? No, cast your net on that side of the boat. And they do it again, and the same thing happens. And so much has happened in those three years that they can't possibly make a connection when he says, throw your net on that side of the boat. But when the net is full, Peter realizes, oh my goodness, it's the Lord. And he dives into the water and swims in it. And I feel like that's like a joke. It's kind of like you do something to somebody, like you wink at them and he's like, watch this. And, you know, watch, I'm going to tell him to put the net over there. And then he's going to realize who just said that to him. You know, there are a number of, there are many moments like that in the gospels that I picked up on. And there are things that Jesus says, I know we're out of time, but it's kind of, it is fascinating to think about humor and truth. To my mind, they will always be inextricably intertwined. There's just no question about it. Humor is like central to my life, but uh, there's a lot more to be said on it. Yes. Well, it's a very good answer. And I hope it provokes people to want to read the book, uh, which is very, as I said, uh, beautiful in many ways and funny in many ways and, and instructive. I see that we are pretty much out of time. So I want to thank you for 
letting me interview you and thank you for writing the book. It's really fascinating. And congratulations on the publication. Well, thank you so much. Actually, I forgot to say I was the editor of the Yale Humor Magazine. And that to me, like, you know, I just humor has always been important to me always growing up. But, you know, now as a writer, it's become in some ways even more important. But I do think that truth and humor are, as I said, inextricably intertwined. So thank you. All right. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org.